You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Brazier. We are getting to the end of this current season, 2022-23, and we are. this is probably going to be the last episode that will air in January. Uh, some of you may be listening in February, but I also want to let you know that we will have a couple of additional episodes, two or three additional episodes that will release here in February, and it'll be some of our season in review type of things, and we'll have some several special guests joining us, so stay tuned for that. Today, on this episode, we're going to be talking about some recently completed research, research that looked at movements of mallards and a couple of other species as well in relation to a variety of environmental factors, variables. One of those is moonlight. Very interesting. So stay with us on this. Joining me in studio to discuss this topic is the graduate student that was responsible for conducting the research, and she is nearing the final stages of that research, Starla Phelps from the University of Arkansas Monticello. Starla, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. 
Starla, this actually isn't your first time at National Headquarters. You were here with some of your colleagues and, and fellow students last year, but we have an opportunity now to sit down with you and discuss in a little bit more detail the work that you have been doing and, and share with us some of the details of that. So I think to start off, we will just get you to introduce yourself, tell us about yourself, where you came from, and how you made it uh, in, into this field. So my name is Starla Phelps. Um, I'm from Middleton, Tennessee, which is about an hour and a half from Memphis, you know, little small town. Um, and so essentially what I did is I went to Christian Brothers University, which is, an, again, a local college here in Memphis. And I started out wanting to do physical therapy. You know, I was just like med school, medical route. That was my plan. And J Dr. Jared Henson, you know, I think it was my sophomore year, was like, hey, like, I work with ducks. And I was like, that seems pretty cool. Like, I don't know much about ducks, but you know. And then one day he was like, do you want to work in my lab? And I was like, well, I need research to graduate. So why not? And so we started working with black belly whistling ducks and I fell in love. You know, I just like was like, whoa, this is so cool. And, you know, and then I was like, well, I'm still going to do physical therapy. Like that's my route. And I did an internship and I was like, nope, I don't love this as much as I love ducks. Uh, growing up, what was your interaction with the with the outdoors? Were you a hunter? Were you a, an angler? Were you exposed to the natural world through those activities uh, at that time? And then uh, do you do any of that now? So my really only experience was like fishing and deer hunting. Um, and even then I didn't go much as a child. You know, so my limited, I have very limited outdoor experience. But I think I was in high school and a bunch of my friends, they went, duck hunting and they would send me pictures of the ducks because I loved seeing the ducks because I thought they were so pretty and they would tell me what the ducks were and everything like that and so that was kind of my experience and then I have actually only been duck hunting once um, and it was with the Delta Waterfowl uh, the hunt program. Hunt program, yep. yeah. That was through UAM, Arkansas Monticello? Um, or? Uh, Christian Brothers University. Okay, Christian Brothers. And so I was the only girl on the hunt and I shot the first duck. Yeah. There so, you go. <laughs> I was just kind of... A little bit of pride in that, yeah, right? Yeah, this is my favorite little tidbit from that hunt. It was it was a great hunt, and I love waterfowl hunting. It's just, you know, I just haven't really had the time with my master's degree to really get into hunting as much as I would like to. Let's transition there to your, your research that you've been conducting over the past few years. Uh, you made your way to the University of Arkansas, Monticello. What year did you start there and how did you make that initial connection? I started in August of 2020 um, and I made the initial connection with Dr. Osborne at the North American Duck Symposium um, where I presented my undergrad research with uh, the black-bellied whistling ducks. And so I met with him there and then that kind of sparked that connection. And, you know, and I just asked him, I was like, hey, I need more waterfowl experience. Can I just come out and volunteer? And he's like, of course. And so I came out a few times and volunteered and that just kind of turned into like that connection. And whenever he was like, hey, I have a master's program. And I was like, okay, you know, so I applied to it and he ended up choosing me for um, a GPS transmitter project. Little did you know at that first time, whenever you had that conversation with Jared, um, when he about working on ducks, would it lead to this new career and that has taken you to a lot of different places, met a lot of different people and will continue to take you to, to new places. Folks familiar with, with Doug Osborne and his lab will know that 
they're doing a lot of work right now and have over the past few years in the in, in Arkansas using some of these kind of high-tech tracking devices to study mallard behaviors. And and your study fits right in there. So I want to transition here to give you an opportunity to introduce your research. I'll I'll give I'll tease it a little bit here and just tell people that it it involves moon illumination. That's one of the real fascinating things of this is is the way you incorporated that as a pretty key part of your research. So tell us about the research that you were involved in. So essentially, my research focused on three species, um, all dabbling duck species, but American widgeon, green-winged teal, and mallards. And so what I did is I put GPS transmitters on them. So they're Ornatella GPS GSM transmitters. And essentially what they are is just like a little backpack that goes on them and it gives me an hourly GPS location for them. And so what it what we do with the information is we take the information so that each the hourly locations and then we figure out like distances and movement probability and just where they are in the habitat. So it gives us a lot of different information with um, these little trackers. And so the ones that that y'all are using, like people have probably seen photos online of, mm-hmm. and a lot of people listening to this, some people listening to this may have may have, may have harvested a bird with one of these backpacks. What goes into like, how do you capture the ducks? When do you capture the ducks? How do you put these things on? How much do they cost? All the common questions that you get. Tell us those, answer those questions for our listeners that may not have heard those yet. So essentially, each tracker costs roughly around $1,000, like a little bit more, but that's kind of like the general cost of them. So how we catch the ducks is there's different ways. Um, we can use swimming traps or rocket netting. Uh, for my project specifically, we use just rocket netting, which is really interesting. So essentially what rocket netting is, is you have a really big net. It's kind of like folded up into a straight line, and then you have a straight line of bait in front of it, and then it's attached to three to four rockets depending on the size of the net. You know, you're kind of off in a blind or in the tree line, you know, just kind of wherever you can hide with like a little button essentially, you know, there's two buttons, but, um, and then you just wait for the ducks to get on bait. And then essentially you hit the buttons and then the net shoot, like the rocket shoot and drags the net over the top of the ducks. So it's really fun to see. And so that's how we capture the ducks. And once we capture the ducks, we put them in these like poultry crates um, with like a floating bottom. Cause usually we're shooting like the net's going to be on dry ground, but we're shooting into water, you know, like shallow water. water. yeah. Yeah. You know? And so, We put them in the crates and then we take them back to process them. And essentially what we do is there's three transmitter sizes that we use for my project. We use 10 gram units, 15 gram units, and 20 gram units. Green winged teal require the 10 gram units because they're the smallest of the three species. And it has to be within 3% of their body weight. And then American Widgeon would take the 10 gram or the 15 gram units and mallards could take all three sizes. And so that's kind of just how we divvied up the sizes. And so what we do for putting the attachment on is like we look for a bird that seems like kind of, I say spunky, you know, like super active and just full of life. And then they have to meet the body requirements, like size requirements of the 3%. Um, So we looked for like a certain weight, you know, and then we just made sure they looked healthy and everything. And then so how you attach the transmitter. So this is really cool. So you have two strands, like two elastic strands. Um, you put one across in front of the wings and it goes 
along the top of the keel, like a thumb width down of the keel. And the keel is just that hard center bone, kind of like almost like our breastbone. Sternum, yep. Sternum, yeah, that's the best way I can think to compare it. Um, So it goes a thumb width down from the top of the keel. And then the bottom strand goes across behind the wings along the bottom of the keel. So it's almost like a backpack, but Mm -hmm. instead of going around the wings, it goes around the body. You've been part of a number of these type of uh, capture efforts. And one of the other things that that Doug and and you guys do is, and it, it's the same, one of the same opportunities that kind of helped spark your interest and your intrigue with some of this, it's they welcome volunteers to either assist with it. In some cases, I think probably people come out and just watch, just observe, because you have to kind of be mindful of not getting a whole crowd of folks in. There's some kind of management stuff that, some kind of crowd management that probably (laughs) goes on at some level. But how cool was that for you to sort of be on the other side of that as you went through this, where, you know, did you ever look back and say, hey, that was me as a younger person being one wanting to volunteer, and now I'm the one telling people how to do this and and sort of setting the nets and responsible for the baiting and doing the research. Was that pretty cool? Oh, definitely. It's one of those things, you know, it's just like, that's one of my favorite parts about research is bringing out the volunteers, you know, because I love sharing what I'm passionate about. Just to see the look on their faces, just like, oh, this is so cool. You know, they, they hang on to your every word, essentially. And it's so cool to like see the transition of being a volunteer to, like you said, being the teacher, essentially, because that's what I want to do. I want to teach and I want to show people that there are so many different opportunities in this world and there's so many different ways to love ducks and take care of ducks. And I just really, really like the teaching aspect of it. What were some of the most memorable moments from all the different capture times, the, the capture events? I think my favorite experience was is when children come out, you know, because you see them, you let them, you know, you teach them how to hold a duck and then they just get all wide-eyed and they're just so happy. And, you know, that's that makes me happy because I want to teach the next generation. I want to be the mentor like I was mentored. Um, and so, especially I had a couple kids go into the swimming trap with me and they just held the crates for me. That way they didn't float off while I was putting the ducks in the crate. And, you know, that was that just made their day. They were so happy just opening and closing the crate and making sure it didn't go, you know, like not swim away, but float away. There we go. That's the word. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you, you stop and think about that. The effort that you're now going to, to welcome those people into those activities and you're allowing them to experience something that's meaningful to you and that it's going to, for some of them, it's going to spark a life changing moment. And they're going to learn about this opportunity, this new career. Maybe they didn't know about it the same way you learned about it. And that's pretty cool, especially in in the era in which we now live, where there are so many things competing for our times. And we have opportunities to welcome people, to show people, to allow them to experience the things that we find so special. When we can find ways to do that and integrate them effectively into our work, I mean, that's that has to be an important part of, of what we do. And I know that's probably something you'll continue to to look forward to, right? Oh, yeah, I agree. I always love being known as the bird lady or the duck lady. You know, as I've had some people refer to me, you know, like little kids especially. They're like, there's the bird lady. Yeah, so let's get a little bit back. We got we kind of um, got off track there a little bit, but it was a good uh, it was a good discussion. I want to get back to the research that you did. Um, what were some of the key questions? So you talked about marking 
mallards, widgeon, green-winged teal, and that's one of the ways in which your study was unique because most of the studies, not all of them, but most of the studies will have focused on some of the larger, more popular, you might say, uh, species of ducks or geese, mallards, pintails are probably on the duck side of things, the two species that have been studied the most. You've kind of introduced this already, I, I think, but what's the, why was that so important in wanting to study additional birds in terms of their their winter ecology. Yeah, so a big part of this is, you know, we wanted to see how the species differed, if they even differed at all. Um, so that was the biggest question, or how did these species react to their environment? Is it similar? Is it different? You know, because mallards, like you just said, are a highly studied species, and a lot of, you know, management focuses on the research that has been done on mallards um, or pintails or like the larger species. So we kind of wanted to look, take a step back and say, okay, how do these other species react um, in comparison to a very popular, very well-studied species? And so we've kind of danced around this study and the, the at least the, the key questions. So I want to ask you now, lay those out for us. You talked generally about wanting to understand their how they interact with their environment and and how things may cause them to, how they may differ. What were the key questions for your research? So the key question for my research was we were looking at specifically movement. And so we, like I said earlier, we got hourly GPS locations. And so what I did is I looked at two major components of movement, which is movement distance and movement probability. Um, And essentially what we did is we just took those two major points and compared the three species. So that's how we decided to compare. So like moving around, how much did these birds move during the during the fall and winter period? What were the what were the dates generally? So the what we did is we started November first and went all the way up until February twenty eighth. So I think it's the Lower Mississippi Valley Joint Venture says the wintering period is early November to late February. So we decided to stick with that. And those are the dates that we kind that we studied. And that obviously overlaps the hunting season. Uh, Waterfowl hunters are keenly interested in the type of information that you were gathering because they want to know where are these birds going? When do they move more than others? And what kind of environmental factors cause them to move? Uh, Can we put some data to that? Hunters that are out there every day, especially in areas, uh, similar areas or the same areas day after day, get a really good feel for what the ducks do on these different days. Uh, Your study and others like it are the things that we do to quantify those for individual birds. And so you were, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, you had movement distances and how they differ among species. And, but then also there's like this key thing of, of looking at differences between nocturnal and diurnal time periods. And that becomes really interesting to waterfowl hunters because there's all this, everyone's, we, we've all heard about and seen these these, these kind of nocturnal behaviors, the, the way birds respond to pressure. And your study was looking at a few, a, a few other things related to that. Um, and so I want to, I want to go there uh, here in just a moment, because it's, it's one of the key 
findings based. I'll ask you to sort of introduce generally the, the different variables that you were looking at, just maybe a, a sampling of them. But then I, I think there were some, we'll jump right to sort of the results, if you will, and talk about how, what were some of the key findings. We'll do that right after the break. So stick with us, Starla. We'll be back to continue discussing this. and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Everybody, welcome back. We are here with Starla Phelps in studio, a, a soon-to-be graduating master's student from the University of Arkansas, Monticello, and we're discussing. We're going to start digging into the reason, in the, into the results of your your research. The thing that I'll say here, I'll take just a moment to, to kind of acknowledge that uh, an important part of the scientific process is kind of waiting until we get to that that peer review publication process. Uh, before we sort of jump too far with with results, findings, and things of that nature, and so we want to keep this uh, pretty pretty high level, uh, sort of out of respect for that. We 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 realize there's like the date you've already collected the data. No no new data is going to be collected, but you still have some work to do with your co-authors, your, your advisor, uh, and your your committee to kind of start and to initiate that peer review process and then eventually lead all the way to, to publication. So we don't want to like get too deep into all the details, but there are nevertheless some pretty interesting findings that we can tease, that we can kind of introduce people to. Um, what I will do at at this point is is sort of recite the title to give people an idea of, of one of the key findings 
moon illumination influences fine scale movements of dabbling ducks wintering in the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. So Starla, when you went into this, it's not like you you didn't set out to just study moon illumination and how that affects movements or anything else related to these birds. There was a whole suite of factors that you investigated, right? Yeah. So what we did is we looked at essentially their internal versus external cues. And internal is like sex and species. And there's other things that you can look at like age as well, but we only looked at sex and species. And then we looked at temporal factors, which is just time, like um, like day of season, which essentially is like from the first day of November until the last day of February and um, and like stuff like that. And then we looked at weather factors and one of those being moon illumination. So I want to, let's try to get a little specific about the variables that we'll talk about here. What were those and how did you measure those? Like the response variables. Okay. And so for our response variable, we looked at movement distance. And so how we got a movement distance is we looked at, we got a GPS point, say for hour six, and then we got it or 6 a.m. And then we got a GPS location for 7 a.m. And then we took the linear distance from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. And that gave us the distance for 6 a.m. And then we took those and we summed them up for the diurnal period. And then we summed them up for the nocturnal period to give us one movement distance for that time period. Okay. And so then you did that for for every duck that you had radio marked or had, had marked for every day for which they recorded. I think it was where they had recorded distances moved for 22 out of the 24 hours in the in the period, right? Something yeah, like that. Yeah, so we, we had to make sure that we had for each day, so we had like a 24-hour time period and those, and then we divided that up into diurnal versus nocturnal. But we had to make sure we had the majority of the location. So we used 22 GPS points or more. So ranging from 22 to 24 GPS points within a day. So you're going through these steps to calculate a metric that is an index of some type of movement movement behavior of all the ducks that you're studying, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to look to see how that movement behavior is affected by all these other independent variables, weather and moon illumination, et cetera, right? Correct. And sex yeah. and, and age and, and so forth. Um, before I forget, how many birds did you have radio, did you have marked? And uh, then how many locations did you get from all those so ballpark? We, we marked um, 214 birds, and I believe we had 121 winter within the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, which was our study area. And out of those, we received roughly around 49,000 locations. It's remarkable to see and hear about the number of locations that all of these, that these devices now provide to researchers. I remember tracking birds with the old VHF handheld or null peak antenna system in the truck and you'd have to drive around, do the triangulation and you might get two or three points a day if, you, if you're doing good um, for, for every bird. Now you're getting, you're getting, it depends on the, the frequency that, mm-hmm. with which we, you program the units, but you're getting dozens, easily dozens of locations a day, very precise, very accurate and precise um, locations, right? And allows you to do all this cool stuff that, um, that at a level that we weren't able to do. And so what did you find 
um, we can just kind of jump to high level. What would what were some of the more interesting findings, acknowledging that there's a whole lot of detail in your thesis and will eventually make it into publication? But just for the sake of our discussion here, from the standpoint of what are the things that you think hunters that our audience would be most interested in what, uh, and what were the key findings? Yeah, so for the diurnal period, each species had their own little set of factors that influence movement distance. But there was not a unifying factor. Like each one had their own little set and that was it. And that's how they varied. Um, But there wasn't just an overarching factor. Whereas in the nocturnal period, there was an overarching factor of moon illumination. So each species responded to moon illumination a little bit differently. um, But overall, they had the common theme of moon illumination. And define moon illumination from like a technical perspective. So essentially, it's just how full the moon is. So we know, you know, you have like like the full moon versus the new moon and stuff like that. So like a new moon would be zero for moon illumination and a full moon would be 100%. So it's just the brightness of the moon, essentially. So I'm intrigued and I, yeah, I want to immediately know, did the brightness of that moon affect the movement that you saw for these birds? Because everybody will, I've heard it said many times, oh, there's a full moon. Those birds are going to be out there feeding. We're not likely to get very much movement the next day, et cetera, et cetera. Was your research able to shed some light, so to speak, on <laughs> on, the, on those types of uh, questions and, and hypotheses? It did. Um, so each species essentially, like I said, responded to moon illumination in the fact of that their movement distances actually increased as moon illumination increased. So as the moon became brighter and more full, their movements actually, distances actually increased as well. And that's the distance measured over the entire nocturnal period that we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Now, was there a, were those movements concentrated around uh, dusk and dawn? How did all that break out? Like, we don't see ducks moving, flying around all throughout the night, even on these fully moonlit nights, do we? So, my research didn't necessarily, like, dive into, like, how, like, you know, when were they moving throughout? We did a little bit with my chapter two research with the movement probability. We did do a a graph that showed, like, when they are moving, like, the probability of movement. So, like, when are they moving by hour? Um, And that showed that a lot of times their movements are concentrated around dusk. And specifically, their movement probability was greatest within the hour after dusk. Yeah, so that means it's, it's, For all intents and purposes, it's getting pretty dark out there on, I mean, just on any kind of average day. But when there's a high degree of moon illumination, they're likely to move. Well, what I would kind of read into that is that's causing them to move more, but those, that movement is still concentrated in that hour or so after dusk, right? Yeah. So essentially, like the way that I see it is that, you know, moon illumination allows them to fly further throughout the night if they there so need to. Presumably that activity was, or that flight is related to foraging. You know, I, I, I know that wasn't necessarily a, a focus of your research, but what, do you, what can you say about the reason for those movements, those nighttime movements? Um, and yeah, just what are, you, what, are you, what are they doing? Yes. So we, that's what we believe is that it's related to foraging. So like they can see further at night, 
or see more at night. So that means they can forage more. So, you know, especially during hunting season, whenever maybe throughout the day, hunting pressure prevents them from foraging, moon illumination provides that light at night to forage. What about any differences between the species? You identified moon illumination as this, quote, unifying factor across the species during that nocturnal period. Were there differences between species in what that what that influence looked like? Each species moved more as moon illumination increased, but it changed during the hunt period. So we had a pre-hunt season, hunt season, and post-hunt season. So essentially it's just broken, broken up depending on the time. And so green-winged teal, they did not respond any differently in the pre-hunt post-hunt and hunt season. So it was the same response throughout of increasing movements while moon illumination increases. That relationship looked the same for them across the entire study period, right? Yes. And then, but then when you break it down to American Widgeon and Mallards, they actually only responded to moon illumination during the hunt season. Did that relationship become stronger during the hunt season? It did. So when you everybody's at, trying to shoot those things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and so essentially, you know, the best graph, my favorite graph of my whole thesis is of mallards. And so with just a little caveat with American Widgeon, we were not able to get any preseason data because they were harder to catch. Um And so we only have hunt season and post-hunt season data for them. And then, but with mallards, we have all three periods, time periods. And so during pre-hunt and post-hunt, you kind of just have like this straight line. Like they're moving at night. There's not really any changes. You know, there's not an increase or decrease with moon illumination. But during hunt season, you get more of like a slope to the line. So instead of just being a flat line, it's kind of like there's a slope to it. And so essentially with that, they're actually moving more as moon illumination increases during the hunt season. So there might be something to this this claim, this this observation that people that I hear about of, um, oh, it's a full moon or it's, it's a brighter night. Those ducks are going to be out there moving around foraging a lot more. It's going to be tougher hunting for us tomorrow. Something like that. Well, all right, so let me ask you then. That that kind of um, thinking sort of relies on, well, not necessarily, but, but it makes one wonder if that increased movement during nocturnal periods during high moon illumination nights leads to less movement the next during, during daylight hours. Do you know if that, did you find anything there? Yes. So during the diurnal period for a couple of the species, moon illumination was influential. So we did a, we actually did like an overall species model um, where we included all three species in the model. And moon illumination during the diurnal period was influential in the fact of they moved less. Ah, there you go. They moved, yeah. So they moved less during the day when moon illumination was high. Hmm. Well, there you go. There's there's some data. There's some data to lend support to that idea of these birds going nocturnal and and feeding more whenever it's uh, whenever you got that full moon or, or brightly lit night. It's gonna be a little a little tougher for you on the next day, maybe. Everybody that's out there and having experienced that and seen that for the past twenty or so years is probably screaming, saying, "Yeah, of course." Starla, I want to move on here to this uh, the 
the next chapter, your second chapter, where you developed a little response variable related to movement probability, the probability of a bird moving during these different hourly time periods, if I'm reading this correctly, uh, and also in response to moon combination. I'm guessing that's like a just sort of unifying or a single variable that combines what moon illumination and duration of of the Correct. moon being above the horizon or something. Yeah. So essentially, moon combination is duration and brightness. Okay. Um. So it's just whether the moon is up or down, and then we and then we multiply it by moon illumination essentially. So if I'm understanding correctly, in this analysis, your chapter two, you would have taken those hourly movements and looked to see if a bird had moved during each of these little hours and to see what that probability of movement was in response to the time of day or night and what moon combination, moon illumination was, right? Yeah. As opposed to summing those movements across all daytime and nighttime periods, which was the focus of the first study or the first chapter, right? Yeah. So essentially what we did for chapter two is we took a movement and labeled it as moved versus not moved. So a moved distance was, it varied by species, but it was greater than roughly 200 meters. And that was, so like a moved distance is an outside of a wetland movement. I find these graphs that are in your in your chapter really uh, intriguing. It took me a while to orient to them, but it does, it gets at one of the questions I was asking before, like, do birds move? Are birds moving in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m.? And this is is indicating that there's not a whole lot of that movement. There's not a whole lot of movement that occurs that time of night, which is is predictable. You know, they're, they're not nocturnal birds. They require some level of, of illumination to be able to see. But when you... Um, I'm trying to see, just look from these graphs, how strong that signal is, that interaction is there with between time of time of day and then moon combination, moon illumination uh, on those probabilities of movement during different hours. These graphs really do highlight what you were saying earlier about the majority of these movements occurring before and after those dawn and, and dusk uh, periods. Anything that you know, that's, can't get into a whole lot of detail on this and people can't see these graphs. They're really cool though. Anything you want to add there on that particular uh, uh, finding? So I think with my chapter two, um, movement probability, like it is very similar to movement distances in the sense of that we kind of had the same overarching results. Like moon illumination was the unifying factor for all species across both. We actually looked at different time periods here. It was morning versus afternoon. Um, so a little bit different. And so essentially, but it gave us pretty much just the same results. Starla, we're going to start wrapping up here. Um, I, I know you've, you've, got a, you've got a thesis defense coming up. So go knock that out of the park. Look forward to seeing um, where you go from here. But I want to give you an opportunity in, you know, 30 seconds or 60 seconds to kind of provide the the highlight from your research. What do people need to know regarding what you found? And, you know, obviously hunters are going to be one of the key audiences. What do they need to know? What can they take away from your research? So essentially, dabbling ducks are different. Um, that's kind of just my key point. And, you know, it's just, you know, while they all responded to moon illumination, they did it differently. You know, they had 
different levels of movements throughout the day. They even varied a little bit when when they move. Um, so essentially, it's just dabbling ducks are different, and those differences are probably due to biological differences in like size, what they eat, you know, what habitats they prefer, you know. So it's just, and also just hunting pressure, you know, because like I know whenever you. Or like just from what I've seen, you know, like a lot of times like you see a pile of mallards and then maybe you get like a widgeon or a teal or maybe something different, which like I said, I'm not much of, haven't been hunting a lot, but I do see a lot of hunting pictures on mm-hmm. my Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the thing that I take away from this is is a really cool relationship that you were able to bring some data to in, in terms of how that moon illumination does affect the likelihood, both the likelihood of, of those movements farther into the into the evening period, um, as well as uh, distances moved. I mean, I as I've said earlier, I think most people that spend a lot of times a lot of time outdoors chasing ducks and it just looking at ducks in those areas will will have kind of noticed some of those things but i i find it i find it rewarding when you collect when we can collect data that provides some let's say empirical information empirical support for some of those things and we can try to quantify it and so appreciate you doing that uh, and yeah we look forward to staying in touch with you as you go forward which leads me to I guess two final questions. First, mention the different people and entities that supported the research. You know, we don't do this. Uh, no one does it by themselves. A lot of people supported you. A lot of different entities helped fund this research. Who are those people? And then talk with us about what's ha- what's next for you. Yeah. So my project was funded by Delta Waterfowl, um, and you know, I had a lot of help from you know the Osborne Lab, like the different students and. Obviously, Dr. Osborne, um, Dr. Ryan Askren, and Dr. Chris Nikolai, and Dr. Jared Henson, all of those are essentially my committee members, and they provided a lot of help, um, you know, and I would like to thank, like, you know, my collaborator on the project was um, Daniel Odin. Like, we essentially took the same data with different projects, if that makes sense, um, you know, and, and then I had a lot of help from, like, Catherine Cody and e- Ethan Dittmer, um, you know, just they're also grad students or, you know, they're moving on, but <laughs> grad students for Doug. But, you know, I really, really like to thank them. And I would love to thank all the volunteers that come out and just make it possible um, just to do it and just make my day so much more fun. And then what's next for you? So I'm actually headed to LSU um, under Dr. Kevin Ringelman. Um um, to work with black billy whistling ducks again. So I'm kind of coming full circle all the way back to whistling ducks. Back to black bellied whistling ducks. Yep, for well, that's a PhD. Pretty, that's pretty cool. Uh, we've talked with Kevin and one of his students. I don't think we've we've had them on a, on an actual episode yet, but I've I've interacted with them on on a couple of things that we've we've done. And and you're go, you're joining a great group down there, great place, and look forward to seeing the work that you do. So, uh, Starla, congratulations on finishing out the research that you've done at the University of Arkansas Monticello. Thank you for your contributions there. Thank you for stopping by here and spending some time with us in in studio. And yeah, look forward to catching up with you later. Thank you so much for having me. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Starla Phelps. We appreciate her time in discussing some of the findings from her research, looking at how moon illumination and a whole host of other weather variables affect the movements of ducks during fall and, and winter. 
As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great job that he does on these episodes. And we thank you, the listener, for tuning in. We thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.